Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Heather Rose. Heather Rose is the author of eight novels. In 2017, she won the Stella Prize for the Museum of Modern Love, a sprawling love story set around Marina Abramovich's art installation at New York's Museum of Modern Art. Today, she's joining me to discuss her new novel, Bruni. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to the land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture, as featured on 2SER. And the Great Conversations podcast is a chance to hear more of these discussions. Did you know that The Great Conversations is just one of the many fantastic literary podcasts from 2SER? If you need more books, why not check out the 2SER Book Club every Tuesday? Or maybe Death of the Reader and take a worldwide mystery tour. But now to Bruni, where a massive $2 billion bridge is being constructed to connect the sleepy Bruni Island to the Tasmanian mainland. It's jobs and growth for the Tassie economy, but also meets with opposition from environmental groups and local interests. So when the bridge is bombed, the question is not so much who could have done it, but which of the many angry parties. Astrid Coleman is returned home to fix the problem. She's a relationships expert from the UN, but with her brother the Premier and her sister the opposition leader, the biggest fixes may be closer to home. Join me as we discuss Heather Rose's Bruni. My name is Andrew Popel and I am joined today by Heather Rose. Heather's first novel was White Heart in 1999 and in 2017 she won the Stella Prize for the Museum of Modern Love. And today she's joining me with her most recent novel, Bruni. It is out... Oh, well, it's out in October, so as you listen to this, it's only, you know, a few weeks old. Welcome, Heather. Thank you so much. It's great to to have you here. Thank you so much, Andrew. Now, I want to introduce people to Bruni. Some some will know Bruni Island. It sits off the uh, the eastern coast of Tasmania. It's a home to some of the state's most beautifully preserved natural environments with abundant wildlife and stunning clifftop views. Now, in your novel, with a population of only several hundred, it seems strange that the government would build a $2 billion bridge connecting Bruni to the mainland. Language warning. And then, as construction nears completion, someone goes and blows the bloody thing up. Bruni is many things, almost all of which I have glossed over in that introduction. I was hoping, Heather, that you might introduce us to the Colemans, who are at the heart of your novel. Yes, so we start with the bridge being bombed, as you know, Andrew, and then we uh, suddenly see a woman arrive at Hobart Airport. She's flying in from overseas. She looks like a world traveller. She's very tall and she's met by a a petite woman who is, is her sister. And we find that our main protagonist, our narrator, is Astrid Coleman, the very tall woman, and the small woman is the leader of the opposition, her sister Maxine. And then we go home with the Colemans and we discover that their brother is John Coleman, the Premier of Tasmania. They are a family of political heritage and their father has dementia and their mother has cancer. And the Colemans have lived with this sort of 
political intrigue in their family because they have been a Labor family and then John has become a member of the Liberal Party and become Premier as a Liberal Premier. So it's one of those families where they're very polite to each other on the surface most of the time, but there's a lot of subterranean tension between everyone. Mm-hmm. And Astrid has come home because she's an international conflict resolution specialist. She's been asked to come home by her brother to settle down the Tasmanians who have been very, very upset by the building of this bridge, but then even more so by the blowing up of it. And so the book is a mystery and it's a thriller and it's also a love story. And it's also a story about family and and the nature of home. Now, this is fertile ground. I think most most readers would take a quick glance at a political family crossing the the political spectrum with uh, a, a mysteriously returned sister who who works in sort of something that we don't quite understand in international relations and and it could go in many different directions and I love that you've decided to go in all of the directions <laughs> I think uh, you mentioned both in the novel but I've also heard you mention that this is a sort of an only in Tasmania moment which is 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 hard, I think, to appreciate until it happens to you. Uh, so we got to say hello. We've we've chatted before around Museum of Modern Love, but we got to meet last week because I was in Hobart, and I came to hear you talk about Bruni. And I sat down, and I had a moment where I glanced across, and the woman next to me stood up, and I thought, "Hang on." And so when she came back, I'd I'd quickly Googled because we'd only spoken on the phone, but I was of course sitting next to Catherine Johnson. Yes, my friend Catherine Johnson. <laughs> Catherine and I have spoken many times. She we spoke around. Matryoshka, but I had not met her, and she said, "Well, but this is a this is a Hobart moment. This is an only in Tasmania would this happen type of moment." And tell me about that. Tell me about your a political only in Tasmania moment. <laughs> well, you know, we do have this incredibly small and close community, and because so many of us have very differing views politically uh, about all sorts of things, we have to learn to get along. So, for example, on Tuesday night, my novel was launched by the Premier of Tasmania and there were also representatives of other parties there at that launch and, in fact, there are photographs of all of us hugging each other at the end of the launch. We are a very close-knit community but one that is also deeply respectful and I think one of the things I love more than anything about Tasmania and especially living in Hobart with the enormous number of sea changes and tree changes that have come south in the last um, you know, two or three decades is we've got a very rich intellectual community as well. So it's a community of ideas, it's a community of opinions and it's a community of connection and that's such a beautiful thing to live with. It's it's. I think, the best of humanity, uh, that we're all able to have conversations but still be respectful of each other. So being able to finish reading the novel in Hobart, immediately it came to life for me and I moved around the city as I met people. So not just not just geographically but culturally mm-hmm. the novel came to life for me. And much is made of Hobart and Tasmania more generally by different characters in the novel. And one of the ways I found that you illuminated this for me is through juxtaposition, and particularly Astrid as a returning Tasmanian. I I noted as she arrived and she's driving from the airport, we see the imposing rise of Mount Wellington, which she notes. And it really is. It's a view that you, you have almost everywhere in the city. Moments before she views the new edifice of the Bruni Bridge, which I was so curious about as I as I was going over the bridge, I thought, 
how would this work? And it must have been enormous to see it from from where Astrid could see it. We also had had a thinking about the vastness of New York versus the the size of Tasmania. And even in competing political views, where many people believe it is this perfect pocket and JC feels like Tasmania is an economic backwater. Um, Juxtaposition becomes a feature, though, also of the narrative style. Sections of storytelling are interspersed with reflection. Is there something about the experience of your Tasmania that exists in this sort of idea of contrast that you've told us through, Bruni? I think there is. I've lived away. I I left Tasmania when I was 19, like Astrid did. And then I lived uh, in Europe and the UK, and then I settled in Melbourne for 10 years. So I had the experience of coming back to Tasmania in my early 30s with a small family and the feeling of re-presencing myself to this idea that you are um, part of a community, that you are in a way, a part of the Hobart family. And family is always a rather complex thing. And there's a sense of belonging in a small community like that that's very special. It also creatively is a rich place to live because it allows for uh, us to know people who are doing many, many, many different things. So I have friends who are filmmakers, friends who are sculptors, friends who are painters, uh, you know, friends who are uh, dramaturgs, friends who are actors. There, there are so many. There's such a beautiful, rich, creative population. And then you have that juxtaposed against dreadful forestry practices and really thoughtless practices around sewerage in the Derwent River. And you have the issues of the fish farming, which we're seeing more and more um, concern about the the erosion of the nurseries in the channels because of the the detritus from the fish farms. And they're... You know, there is a lot of juxtaposition, there's a lot of visual beauty, but there's a lot of um, mismanagement of the environment that's happened over the last 100 years too. And so to live in Tasmania is to live with this contrasting world, this sense of, you know, conflict around activism with trying to protect the environment, but also really loving the community that we live in and then being at odds with people over these practices and being at odds with our politicians and yet we know our politicians because we grew up with them. So it is always a place of con- competing ideas, uh, rich ideas and tension. There is always a tension. So if we think about that sort of march of modernism that you've described and the impact that it's having, is, is there any sense that Tasmania is an anachronism or is it perhaps a beacon? In, in the way that that juxtaposition sits? Against- I think we've been a beacon to the world in giving birth to the Green Movement, and especially now, here we are in 2019 with the climate emergency so evident to all of us, despite what our politicians would like to tell us. And I think we have been a beacon in that way. And in, in some ways, I think the lifestyle there... Uh, you know, you're, you've just had this experience yourself. People go there for the first time and then they don't want to leave because it does feel like the best kind of place to be. It, it's close to big cities. It is an, you know, Hobart is a capital city itself. It's serviced by all the things that a capital city enjoys. But it's also a place that within 10 minutes you can be on the mountain and there are just bird calls and wind in the trees and a magical vista and the sun the sun just creating this beautiful 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 bright blue sky and it's 
you know, it's a magical, magical place visually, environmentally, and yet we have to take care of it because we are now having over a million tourists a year come to Tasmania. That will almost certainly increase. We are now as Tasmanians, it's hard to get to the places we love, you know, I've already had to face the reality of camping grounds that I've taken my children to summer after summer after summer being closed because now there's development and there are, you know, five-star cabins there now that, you know, normal Tasmanian families just can't afford. We've seen Freysenay overrun with tourists. It's hard to get in there unless you want to go at nine o'clock for sunset. You know, it's a thoroughfare up to the lookout at wine glass similar to Swanson Street in Melbourne or or you know in George Street in on a really busy afternoon it's it's we are not doing well on managing the flow of tourists and we have to think better about that in Tasmania and this is now but of course now is not bruni it's a product of our near future. I, I put together a few clues and I figure we're somewhere around 2022, 2023. A lot has happened to the world to get us to Bruni. The Queen is dead. Trump, or we assume it's Trump, has got a second term. We're looking a lot more conservative. How did you make these decisions to begin with? And what, what did you want to signal for the world of Bruni? I think when I started playing around with the idea, so I had the idea for this bridge because I literally walked my own beach and saw this trick of the light, a cloudscape between Tinderbox, which is a headland on the main island of Tasmania, and North Bruni. There's a channel in between there called the Dondrocasto, and I saw this enormous sort of cloud bank and light through it that made it look like there was this immense bridge. And I thought, wow... What would happen if there was a bridge like that and why would there be a bridge like that? And so suddenly Astrid turns up at the airport. For me, my characters are very vivid for me and it's as if a movie is playing in my mind and I have to follow my characters along. And the world was very different. There was Astrid coming home after being in the Middle East because there's a renewed caliphate. Uh, America has withdrawn from the Middle East Uh, We have this, as you say, isolationist president who remains unnamed but is in his second term. Uh, Erdogan has given the caliphate a thoroughfare to the sea, which changes the economics of of the Middle East enormously and and indeed of the caliphate. And so it wasn't as if I... Uh, I mean, I steeped myself in research for this book. There was an enormous amount of research into the into the flow and effects of the GFC in America uh, from 2008, international relations, you know, Middle East politics. In some ways, I simply speculated on what would happen if, and that's always mm. a great deal of fun as a writer, the what-if scenario. And so we find Astrid coming home from a world that feels more dangerous than it does now. But strangely, because I wrote this between 2015 and 2018, so much of what we're seeing escalating in 2019 and this rise of the far right that we've been witnessing now for a number of years in a number of countries is becoming more pressing and of more concern, especially to Australians. And... I didn't mean to be prescient. Uh, in some ways, it, you know... You probably you didn't would, want to be prescient. I didn't want to be prescient. I, I, I was writing a satire originally. I was imagining this sort of crazy scenario and what would happen if the world was like that. But now, four years after beginning the book, the world is becoming more like that every day. Mm-hmm. 
you've used that word satire and that is exactly where I want to go because we can't ignore the plot of Bruni. We have sown the seeds. The reader now has a very good idea both of the time and the place that we're in. But of course, we also have to ignore quite a bit of the plot because I, I want to avoid revealing so many of your fantastic twists and turns. But following the explosion, Astrid has arrived to help manage the different groups involved in the Bruni Bridge construction. Her access opens up the world of Hobart to her to, and, and to us, as well as that broader political scope. And strangely, I hadn't really thought much about the satirical elements of Bruni until I heard you mention it at the talk I went to last week in Hobart. Now, this is an undeniably sharp and hilarious novel. There is a a fantastically named cyclone that I know was not an accident. I'm going to let people discover that. But I wonder, because I, I I did not think of this foremost as a satire, has politics gotten so weird that satire often looks like the more sane scenario? Isn't that a startling consideration? I've had the same problem. I mean, I I was writing a satire and the world got crazier than I could ever imagine. And I think that many writers must be facing this globally at the Mm. moment, that we, we... we love the satirical form, and, and as readers, it's it's great fun, isn't it, to read a satirical novel? But what could be more ludicrous than what we're facing at the moment, and and the the sort of uh, the myopia of our politicians saying to us, "Look, there's nothing to see here. You know, there's no climate emergency. There's nothing to see here. Children should be children," and yet. All of us can feel and see with our own eyes that the world is changing mm. environmentally at a radical rate. We're hearing stories. You don't need, you know, a politician to tell you that, oh, the latest report on the Murray Darling shows that it has problems. I mean, the people living there can see that and have been seeing that for decades. And it's as if we have this terrible divide between our leadership and what we as the electorate uh, are, are yearning for in mm. our politicians and our leaders. I'd like to I'd like to plant a seed for the listener right now to come back to, because we can't talk about the ending. I won't talk about the ending. But was that scenario a part of the satire? Were, were you? Of uh, course. Okay, so I'm uh, so glad you've pointed that out because you're the first person that's pointed that out. Of course, it was. Yes. It, again, it didn't seem so far from a possibility. Um, look, you pit Astrid against a variety of political movers, as well as homegrown agitators and Chinese financial interests. So this is a global situation that is massing around Bruni. And we're seeing these plots play out on our screens as we read. What was concerning you? You've mentioned this was written between 2015 and 2018. Mm. What was concerning you as you wrote Bruni? Uh, we've had 27% of our agricultural land in Tasmania transferred into foreign interests in the last decade. Mm. And that seems to me an alarming figure. And in Australia, we've also seen land transfers into foreign interests with no consideration for agricultural security for future generations here. No sense that this, you know, not only is climate change going to radically shift our agricultural um, wealth, mm. we aren't planning for that, let alone allowing all the produce off our land to go into foreign countries to mm. feed 
other populations with no consideration for what Australians may need in the future. So I think our lack of planning, our lack of vision, the lack of conversation about these very, very critical issues to the well-being of Australians in the next 500 years, let alone 30 years, is is such a gap in our in our cultural conversation here in Australia that I think it's uh, it's it's a tragedy and it's also a travesty of um, of political will because it's clear that you know the thing what you notice I think I was very concerned with the nature of democracy because what I started to feel through you know 2015 to 2018 was that democracy was becoming a more fragile story structure for what was serving people and we take democracy for granted in this country and yet uh, we are seeing a greater divide between those people who have and those people who don't and even yesterday we saw one of our most senior politicians suggest that people who are protesting should have their benefits taken off them. And those people who are protesting are the most vulnerable when it comes to future employment anyway. We know that there is a wave of automation coming that will, you know, um, create enormous job job losses in this country. Mm. It's already become apparent in America that an enormous number of people are losing jobs Mm. thanks to automation. And again, we haven't planned for that. And the idea that the politicians are saying, well, we're going to take your benefits off you if you protest, even though to protest is the only way we can object to this lack of planning for the future. It's even more frightening that it's, I mean, it's a grab bag of who who do we want to actually talk about in the political sphere that is seems to be working against our interests because we also have a PM who has spoken out as of the time of our speaking in the last sort of 48 hours against internationalism when it comes to uh, global leadership on issues. But as you've, as you've already pointed out, we will be international in the way we open up the country to, <laughs> to, for sale, but uh, perhaps not in our, in our politics the way that we might then allow international furor to impact us. It seems, I mean, I think you make uh, this criticism of JC that uh, he's very much a person who um, everything's up for sale at the right price and uh, jobs and growth, three word slogan. Yeah, mm. jobs and growth. Aren't we sick of that one? I'm personally very sick of that one. You know, the, the economic model that we've had. You know, capitalism is it was a great invention, but if you go back to the birth of capitalism, it was about making sure workers received the largesse of the profitability of a business, and that has stopped happening in the last 30 years. You know, the wealth has stayed at the very, very top and hasn't filtered down to workers. Not only has Newstart not been changed in this country, but our wages have hardly grown at all in comparison to the profitability of our companies. And that lack of sharing wealth was never the intention of capitalism Mm. and I think we need to have better conversations about that and it's as if our media has so dumbed down also especially our print media but nevertheless our TV coverage and you know the Murdoch press all of that has so limited the intellectual debate in this country as if all we're capable of understanding are three-word slogans. And the lack of long-form journalism, the lack of those richer conversations through the media, it, it's, it's, been a, it's caused a paucity of 
conversation in our country. And indeed, it's it's failed to educate people efficiently. But of course, conservative governments love people to be uneducated because mm. then they tend to vote for conservative governments. Yeah. Yeah. So th- we know that the more educated a, a community is, the more we tend to want better outcomes for the whole of society. We're, yeah, we're frighteningly in a time of, of broad media, um, a broad media landscape, we're, we're starving. Mm-hmm. In a t- we're starving in a time of plenty because the message, the message is very thin. The message is very thin. And, and, mm-hmm. and as you say, we're starving. We're hungry for leadership, but also mm-hmm. we understand that we're in a very fragile time. And when we look around the world at the kind of strongman leadership that has risen up and the lack of human rights we're seeing, I mean, it's terrifying to consider the impact of that in the next 20 or 30 years on many countries that just take our civil liberties for granted. So let's then look at an area that I thought perhaps, I don't, I'm not sure if you consciously dangled it as a form of hope, but well, let's look at that. Because while intrigue drives the plot forward, it it's the relationships that were really the hook for me. Mm. And it's a love story, isn't it? It's a love mm. story on so many different levels with family, uh, with community, with the landscape, and, of course, with Dan. <laughs> yeah. Well, Dan, Dan, I've noticed in conversations and things I've read about Bruni, he gets he gets short shrift. But let's let him do He can be a dreamboat that people can discover. And I, I did remember this as well from my reading of the Mu- Museum of Modern Love, that you, you beautifully entwine your characters and us as readers – in stories of people such that they become our passion for the story. Now, there is undoubtedly intrigue. There is a a page-turning plot twist, but it's that human element and how we come to know it. So economics, economics has this tendency to reduce us to producers and numbers mm-hmm. in an economy. Mm-hmm. While art can elevate our individuality, and there are so many characters in Bruni that are no one or no one more than the next person. You have a pivotal scene where the battle between these priorities is really harshly illuminated. So what price the arts then? And how can we better incorporate them into our lives before there are, I guess, we might say more bridges to bomb? Yes, it's a great question, isn't it? I mean, we have to consider that our our cultural landscape is a reflection on the well-being of our community. And so when we constantly undermine our cultural landscape by failing to fund it, Mm. by defunding it, uh, by limiting the the productivity of Mm. many, many creative Australians simply because we have to do whatever we can to pay our mortgages and get our kids through school and all of those sort of things. Mm. And so we're, we're working around the edges. And when you think about the richness that would have, would have been possible if we had really continued to fund the arts in a way that we saw mm. in the 70s, uh, what our country might have been. And, you know, we've, we've lived on the back of mineral resources, but they run out mm. and you aren't a culture without creativity. And when we're facing so many challenges in the 21st century in terms of, as I've said before, automation, we need really individual thinkers to solve these issues. It's only been from, you know, creative thinking that the world has developed all that it has developed. And here in Australia, we've had an extraordinary commitment to sport and a much lesser commitment to the arts 
But when it all comes down to it, the the creativity that that starts great conversations is really the bedrock of how we look to the future for our values, uh, for for leadership, and indeed to tell our stories, Andrew. You know, we need to tell our stories. We need to know our stories. And, you know, it's hard enough to get people to read these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... And, and, you know, we just watch so many arts organisations underfunded or defunded and unable to produce great works. And I think that we are so much poorer for it. So we have a problem then because art doesn't disappear and artists don't stop creating simply because they're not receiving the support that they, they should receive. Does that create a, a, I guess, a false reality where people believe somehow that that this will continue on. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm a great consumer of literature, but uh, I, I don't see as many stories outside of that. But people are happy consumers of of stories on screens. And I think there's this, this false idea that that will perpetuate without other forms of art and that creativity might somehow continue on just as we, if we just leave it. Yes, I'm. I think that that's a very dangerous view of the world. I mean, I teach uh, creative writing down at the University of Tasmania seasonally, and so often my first years will be proud to tell me that they've maybe read one novel in their whole education, and I'm so appalled because these are people who've come into a creative writing class. Mm. You know, they're people who are interested in creative writing. And what it says to me is that they're much more interested in telling you their story than hearing other people's. And that that's a slippery slope, I think. And it isn't how we make great writers. It isn't that, you know, you have to think of your audience, but you also have to be part of the history of your craft. And all my writing is informed by all the books that I've read and the great works of literature because that helps me understand what's possible. And I think, again, how can we possibly know what's possible for a society if we don't know history and that if our media doesn't help to shape an argument by giving us a lot of background and a lot of um, rich content that helps us make up our own minds about things. It's as if we're sort of served the outcome without anything about the background so often in the media these days. And, you know, we are poorer for it in Australia. And, you know, you look at our educational outcomes and they're really sliding in comparison to the rest of the world. And in in Tasmania especially, we have enormous problems with illiteracy and innumeracy. And and that's aligned with poverty, and yet we're getting a greater divide between the rich and the poor in Australia generally. And so that poverty is what will also cause people to lose faith in democracy. So, you know, I was thinking about all those things as I went on writing the book. But as you say, character is everything. And for me, in, in all my favourite books, it's the characters that I remember. Yes, I remember mm. the stories, but it's the characters that have made me fall in love with literature. And I think that is the thing about Bruni, and I think that might be where we leave our conversation so that people can run out, grab a copy of Bruni, because I started by saying you had this fertile ground and you could have gone in so many directions and you chose to go in all of the directions and the characters take us there. 
And while we can't talk about the ending, I will I will assure people that it is well worth your time. Heather, I'm speaking with Heather Rose. We are discussing Bruni. And Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and, ch- and talk to me. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been delightful. That's it for this great conversation with Heather Rose. Heather's new novel is Bruni, and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. And why not click subscribe in your podcast app? It means you will get a new Great Conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft.